Maybe that wasn't such a good idea for them to play that right before I came up here. (laughs) Uh, Get your Bibles out. You're going to need them. We're going to be in Exodus. And uh, I tell you what, I get super, super excited about what I do every week. And uh, this week is no exception. Um, I have been, I want to just give a quick props and shout out to my friend Stu who got to study with a rabbi a couple of weeks ago over Memorial Day and I sat down with Stu and uh, I and ironically enough they happened to study Exodus 14 which is where we're going to be and we sat in a coffee shop uh, this last week and he shared with me all of this stuff that I'm telling you is just incredible Uh, and so I get to share it with you so I'm really really excited about that Um, this is the final night uh, in the history of solstice, and uh, it's a big night. This is the end of an era. It's the end of a chapter in my life. It's the end of a chapter in this church's life. Uh, it's the end of a chapter in a lot of our lives who have been a part of this community. Uh, because six weeks ago, I announced uh, the, this movement and this feeling and this calling that Laura and I have felt for a bit in, in the process of uh, uh, the future of what God is calling us into. And so tonight we celebrate the past, we celebrate what God has done in and through solstice, and we celebrate and look forward to what God is going to do in and through Awaken. And uh, over the past couple of years, uh, if you've been with us, uh, you'll know that for me I take this very seriously, what we're about to do in studying the scriptures. And um, I have, uh, we've journeyed together through all kinds of different stories that are found in the scriptures, and hopefully... Uh, I have beat into your heads in a very loving pastoral way some of the things that are really important if we're going to have any chance in understanding what this book has to offer for us. Because let's be honest, it was written 2,000 plus years ago at its earliest. Uh, And so this is a long time ago that this stuff was written. And so some of the things we've talked about are understanding this book in its original context. Uh, If we're going to understand it at all, we have to get back to its original context and try to understand it. We've talked about how important it is to hear the voice of an author. So often we look at this book and it's black and white, it's static, it's two-dimensional, and we think God just, you know, like, took over Matthew's life, and for a moment, while he wrote, uh, irrespective of his, his, you know, uh, personality and all that, and I think it's a little bit more than that. I think it's, there was a dance between the authors that wrote this and the God who inspired it. And so for us, the voice of the author is really important. Uh, what are some of the cultural clues that we have to look at in order to get where we're going? And so tonight, one last time as the Solstice community, I want to walk you through this story. And I hope uh, that what we find in it is meaningful and uh, compelling and inspiring for each of us in different ways. Over the last six weeks, we've been on a journey with the the children of Israel since we discussed Awaken and announced it and have been pressing into, as they were being called out of Egypt, how did they or and when did they find themselves listening to and learning how to listen to this God, this Yahweh? And how did they and when did they find themselves learning how to hear His voice? And so we're going to turn our attention tonight to the story of the Exodus uh, one last time. And one of the most epic, uh, one of the most amazing and, and biggest stories of the Bible, and I would argue possibly of all of religious history, this story, uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, is one that everybody knows. And it's this moment where the children of Israel are led out of Egypt and they're standing in front of this impassable thing that is impossible. And God does something and they walk on dry ground with water on their left and water on their right, and they walk to freedom. 
They walk to new birth. They walk to new life. And so we're going to study that. Now, before we read this story, I have to tell you, I've thought a lot about what I was going to say tonight. I have meditated and prayed about it. And I recognize that what I'm going to do in the next half an hour is going to land in different places and in different hearts because we're all at different spots. Uh, Some of you have already committed to Awaken and said, yes, I want to be a part of that. Some of you are still in process. Some of you have felt God leading you to stay here or to to go elsewhere. Uh, Some of you already are elsewhere, and some of you just have more questions than answers. And so what I'm going to say is going to land in different places because of all of those things. And so I want to just ask for your uh, maybe uh, grace, and and I want you to, 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 to think critically about the metaphors and the pictures and the nuances of what I'm about to say. Because it doesn't apply all the way across the board to everybody. For example, Egypt, okay, the narrow place where God cannot be worshipped, is not Berean. All right? We're not leaving that place. So as you look at the metaphor and you're like, oh my gosh, is he saying that Berean's like Egypt and it's the narrow place where God can't be worshipped? No, that's not what I'm saying. Okay? So you just have to work with the metaphor and where it applies, and it does all over the place, apply it. Okay? Is that, does that make sense? Everybody cool there? All right, so if you would, stand with me. We're going to read Exodus chapter 14, a passage from the Torah. This is most likely Moses, and he says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite of Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and lost their services. So he and his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all of the other chariots of Egypt with the officers all over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all the Pharaoh's horsemen, the chariots, the horsemen, the troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Haharoth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. They said, Moses, was it because there were not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And Moses answered to the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians uh, will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel throughout the night. The cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back with a strong east wind 
and turned it into dry land, and the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through sea, went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. God, as we enter into this story and we try to understand uh, why it was written the way it was written and what was going on in the minds of the people who heard it first, we're a long time after that, God, and so we need your spirit to guide and direct us. We need your, the light of your spirit to show us uh, the, the deepest parts of our heart. And God, we need you to call us into freedom. We need you to call us into whatever it is you're calling us towards. We need to hear your voice, God. And so we pray that that would be the case. In your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. You can have a seat. And as you do, we're going to, uh, uh, there should be some offering bags on the uh, side chairs here. You can pass those to the edges. If you get them on the end, you can hang on to them, bring them up as we close it with a couple of songs. So um, here's what we're going to do tonight. I want to unpack this as a Hebrew narrative, first and foremost. Then I want to talk about how did the Israelites hear it first, the Hebrews, and then I want to take it uh, into finding our place in the story. And so as we do that, as we talk about what it means to a group of Jewish people, and then the implications for the people who heard it, I want you as, as, as the congregation tonight to be asking this question. As we learn this information, and as I'm about to share all the stuff that I've learned, I want you to be asking the question, where am I in this story? Where do I find myself in this story? And are there pieces of it or parts of it that are, are right where I'm at? So, first and foremost, we have to unpack this as a Hebrew narrative. You've got to understand that this book was written to Jewish people a long time ago, and it was written by Jewish, a Jewish person to Jewish people. And so when you're telling a story as a Jewish person, um, there aren't like signposts out in the desert, in case you didn't know this. Like the places where Moses took these people, there weren't signposts that said Pi-ha-haroth and Migdal and other things. So we have, to, we have to understand that when he says those words, he's not actually trying to tell you exactly the specific location that they were going or where they went, but he's actually tapping into something deeper, a particular meaning or symbol that each of these words means. And so I'm going to run over here, and these are going to be on the screen. If you're a note taker, uh, we're going to talk about these words. I want to tell you guys, as I met with this, uh, my friend who met with a rabbi, each of these words means something really, really profound. And as we unpack them, I think your eyes will be opened. And if you're anything like me, you'll say, oh, my lanta, that is incredible. Though you might not say my lanta. Um, okay, so first and foremost, Egypt. In the story of the Exodus, the, the Israelites are coming from Egypt, and Egypt was a location, it was a place, but for the Hebrew, it meant something more than just the location, and it meant this. The word Egypt actually means the narrow place. So as you read the story, they're leaving the narrow place where God cannot be worshipped. So when you hear Egypt, and this is where they're coming from, what they're leaving is a place that they would have understood as a very narrow place that God cannot be worshipped in. Secondly, Pihaharoth, this place that they're told the camp, is actually translates the mouth of freedom. So they're told to camp at this place, Pihaharoth, which means the mouth of freedom, and they're told that this place is between Migdal and the sea. Now, Migdal is an, and this is fascinating, Migdal is, a, is an actual Egyptian outpost where the military of Egypt, the strongest group of people on the planet, would have come to look out over the desert and see who might be out there. So if you, this is a military outpost, basically, uh, Terry, look out, you get the picture. So this is Migdal. The Israelites are told to camp at the base of Migdal, the bottom of the mountain between the sea, which is a metaphor in Hebrew, in Hebrew uh, literature for chaos 
and evil. In Revelation, uh, I think it's chapter 22, it says that the sea will be no more. And what John the Apocalyptic writer is telling us at that point is that evil is done away with. Most other ancient Near Eastern creation stories will say that there was chaos and there was the sea and there was everything that, that happened came out of this tumult and it was just craziness and bizarre. If you look at the creation story of the Hebrew scriptures, it says that the Spirit of God hovered over the water and actually what comes from that Uh, in Genesis 1, is not chaos, but order and creation. So they're told to camp between Migdal and the sea. They're told to camp at the worst possible place that you could possibly camp if you're running from the Egyptian army, and the sea, which is a metaphor for evil and chaos. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you, God, for telling us to stop there. Now, there's Baal-Zephon is a code word for a Canaanite god. So this is a Canaanite god of the north. Whenever in Hebrew you hear a cardinal direction, it doesn't mean go that way. It actually refers to something. So north means hidden or deceit. So they're they're told (laughs) they're told to camp between Migdal and the sea. Just so on one side is this, and on this on the other side is Baal Zephon, the Canaanite god of hiddenness or deceit, the false Canaanite god of hiddenness or deceit. Okay, so. In one, in like chapter, uh, in verse about eight, I think the word, or maybe it's five, the word king of Egypt is used for the first time of Pharaoh. Whenever something's used for the first time, you always want to pay close attention to it. And most scholars would connect this back to uh, Exodus chapter eight. This is the plague of the frogs, if you remember. So Pharaoh says basically, and if you remember the first plague, uh, Moses does something, and then Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. And then in the second plague, the frog plague, Moses does something, and Pharaoh asks Moses. To, to ask the God of, of the Israelites, to ask Yahweh to take care of the frogs, like to get rid of them because they can't. So Pharaoh acknowledges the power of Yahweh, and yet he goes his own way. So Pharaoh acknowledges that this God has power and he has some kind of authority, and yet he goes his own way. And most, most of the rabbinic scholars, when it says that, God, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, That's what they're talking about. It's this idea of acknowledging Yahweh, like, yes, he's there, and yet I go my own way. And he's called the king of Egypt in that sense right there. So this is uh, the idea that he goes his own way. I don't know if I spelled goes, but that's okay. Uh, East, so just like north, symbol, symbolic. East means from the beginning... And wind in Hebrew is ruach, which is the same word that we use in, in, in the New Testament, pneuma, which is the same word for spirit. So, <laughs> this is where it just gets awesome. And wilderness means literally to speak. Okay? Now, let me unpack this for you. Here you have a group of people, the Israelites. They're leaving the place, the narrow place, where God cannot be worshipped. They have been called out into the desert by this God, this Yahweh. And he says to them, in actuality, if you look at a map, they're like the sea, uh, this is like the sea, and they come down here, Migdal's like here, Pihaharoth is here. They were actually over here, and God says, would you go back and camp here at Pihaharoth, the mouth of freedom between chaos, the impassable, the impossible Red Sea, and Migdal, where the Egyptian army is likely to see you, and Baal-Zephon, the Canaanite god of hiddenness, camp there, if you would, please. 
That's not a good idea, in case you didn't know. If you're fleeing the Egyptians, that's not the spot to camp. And so God says, camp there if you would. Ah. Now, first of all, with Migdal, the sea, and Baal-Zephon, God tells them to camp in the most ridiculous possible place that they could camp. He exposes them to the pursuing Egyptians, that, and they're hemmed in by the impossible Red Sea on the other side because God is about to do something that only God can do. So if you're reading this from a, a Hebrew perspective, right? We've talked about unpacking it. Now we're doing the Hebrew perspective thing. That This is stop here, and God is about to do something that only God can do. Secondly, there's always a choice in the narrative with God's people. There's always a choice when this story is told. Like, you could go this way, or you could go this way. It's as if the author is setting up this moment in a story, this, this conflict in the story, where the characters have to choose which way they will go. And on one side is Egypt and the false Canaanite god of hiddenness and deceit, and on the other side is the mouth of freedom. But... If for them, it doesn't really look much like the mouth of freedom. It looks like impossibility. It looks like the sea. And Israel has a choice here in this moment. They can take matters into their own hands, and they could fight, they could run, they could do whatever, but what does Moses tell them to do? He says, be still. And what you are about to experience is something that only God can do. Then you have the whole sea and the east wind thing, often a metaphor for chaos and connected to creation, So the Spirit of God hovers over the water at creation and then speaks into being order and creation as we get it in Genesis 1. The writer tells the Israelites that these two words here, literally what he's saying is the Spirit from the beginning, the east wind, so God with a strong east wind, so the Spirit from the beginning is parting the water and you are, are, are going to be asked to walk through this water Does anybody recognize this story? A spirit hovering over the water, dividing land and water. This is creation. And last week I talked about the fact that I think there's three creation accounts in Scripture. Genesis 1, this one right here, Exodus 14. And this is what the the Jewish rabbis believe as well. That this is the moment that the, the, the people of Israel, the people of God are birthed and God creates and constitutes this new group of people. And then, arguably, Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes and empowers the church. And, and so this, this author, Moses, invites the Hebrew to participate in this epic moment of creation as this strong east wind, the Spirit from the beginning, blows back the water, where you, as a people, will move from death to life, where you will move from death to new birth. And then, of course, they're headed out towards... What's, what comes after the Red Sea? Where do they go? Does anybody remember that in the story? The desert, the wilderness, right? For 40 years they wander around. But literally in the Hebrew, it's to speak. And so they're led into the desert where the, to this place where God will speak. Fascinating. So the question that I would like to maybe close, us, close our time with is this. What about you? What about me? Where are we in this story? Some of this, of course, is applicable. No one's leaving Egypt. But much of it, I think, is. Let me just highlight a couple of things as we, uh, as we close. First is this. What God is leading towards is always freedom. Many of you have been a part of church for a long time. Some of you have not been a part of church for much time at all. I reckon that probably all of us have things in our memories and in our experiences that we might associate with a negative feeling in church. 
And sometimes we have a problem and, 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 and we, we experience something within religion or within church or within spirituality and we take that and we sort of impose it or we reflect it or we transfer that to God. And oftentimes the, the idea of trusting God is a really difficult thing. And I want you to know tonight as we read this story, as we read all kinds of other stories in the scriptures, what we know to be sure about this God is that when he says, follow me, when he says, when he calls your name and says, follow me, we know and can trust that what he's leading us towards is always freedom, always new birth, always new life. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the scriptures. This is the Jesus that we see on the cross. And when God says, follow me, there isn't, there's, there's no logical reason according to this and what we have testified in this book for us to hesitate and not trust because he is always leading to freedom. We all have our Egypts. We all have our places where, where, where God cannot be worshipped. Uh, whether it's a relationship that was destructive, whether it's a job that's, that's led you away from your passions and the things that God has made you to be, whether it's an addiction that has fooled you into believing that you can't live without it, or even sometimes it's something that appears to be good, but actually it's enabling idleness. It's enabling a faith that's not active and trusting in who God is. We can know and trust that God always wants to lead us away from that place and towards freedom, towards a place <laughs> towards a place where he says, camp here. It's a ridiculous notion by all accounts. But we can know and trust that God is always leading us towards freedom. I would say secondly, uh, this, this idea of the places where God asks us to camp. Often God calls us and asks us to take steps of faith and asks us to follow him into places that seem ridiculous and absurd. Sometimes God asks us to set up camp in very inopportune places. And sometimes it looks like Migdal on one side and the impossible sea on the other of chaos and, and impassibility. It's funny, the most common response I get when I talk about the fact that I'm planting a church is, are you crazy or do you know how hard that is? <laughs> yes and yes, all right? Uh, I think I might be a little crazy. And yes, I do know how hard it is, but it's here. It's at this place where it's impossible, impassable, improbable, not smart to set up camp. It's here that we learn to trust and be still between Migdal and the sea. And it's here that we experience these moments of creation where the God of creation, who is all about new little creations all along the way, and he's calling us into these things. It's here at these places where we experience the God who can do the impossible. And it's here that we experience the God who shows up when, when, when you would think no one ever would. It's here in these places where God asks us to set up camp that we experience his faithfulness and his trustworthiness and his hugeness. I would say also, so he's always leading us to freedom. This idea of where God sets, asks us to set up camp. Third, I would maybe say it like this. Uh, what did I put up there? Our fears in facing the impossible. I find it interesting that God asked the Israelites to stop here at this place where you have fear and terror on one side and impossible on the other. And it's, he actually asked the Israelites to turn and walk towards the impossible. 
If you're a, a Jewish person who has just come out of Egypt, what is in front of you is the sea. You can't swim across it. It's a metaphor for evil and chaos. It's everything that you shouldn't be walking towards. And God says, take a step and walk towards impossible. And watch. I will tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the hardest part of this journey for me was fear. I had a sense that God was asking me to do this. I had a sense in my gut that he was inviting me to take this step of faith. And I hesitated and I waited and I processed more and more because I was scared. Because I had fear. What if God does... You remember what I said earlier? We have experiences and then we transfer it to God. What if I take a step of faith and God's not there? What if I step out in faith and the person who says he would be there that I can trust isn't there? Probably just speaking from my own experience. None of you have ever thought that of God, I'm sure. And so I was scared, fear that I would fail, fear, uh, scared that if I stepped out, God wouldn't be there. And God walks the Israelites, stops them at a place where fear and terror would, would be amidst the camp, and then asks them to walk towards the impossible. Then there's this idea of this creation thing, this, this God who's a creator. Last week we talked about these three, three creation accounts. God cannot help creating. I would argue that this God that we find in scriptures, this is just who he is. It's part of who, how, how he, he works and how he's revealed himself. And so this God who cannot help creating life from death, what we learn in this story is that the creative spirit of God is at work in the world doing the impossible. This happened 3,000 some years ago and God parted the Red Sea and did the impossible. And I have a sneaky suspicion and I'm going down on this ship that the same God who was at that creation moment when the people of God as Israel were birthed and the same God who was at creation when it hovered over the water and the same God who was there when the spirit empowered the church is the same exact God who sits here with you and with me tonight and who says, I, I, am, I have died to give you new, new birth. It's who I am. It's what I'm about. And there are these moments when he says, take a step of faith. Take a, walk this direction. It looks impossible, but do it. Because in that moment, we take steps of faith and we walk on dry land with water on our right and water on our left. And what, what, what happens on the other side of it is birth. We walk through this canal. And, and, and prior to it, this people was not a people. They were just a bunch of people who were running from Egypt. And as they walk through the Red Sea, in this moment, they are birthed as the people of God. And there's this creative moment. And this group of people now becomes this, this light in the world, this, this city on a hill. And again, it happens at, 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 in Acts chapter 2 with the church. And I wonder if there isn't for any of us the impossible that stands before us, whatever it is for you. But this is a God who we can trust. This is a God who asks us to camp in crazy places because he's about to do what only God can do. It's a God who asks us to stand and face our fears in the impossible and walk towards them because in that moment, he does what only he can do and creates new things in our lives 
And lastly, I would say this, and I will close and be done. God leads the Israelites to the mouth of freedom. Pi hahiro. But if you read the story really carefully, you will notice that prior to this point, the pillar of fire in the cloud was always in front of them. It always led them. It always showed them where to go. And in this moment, in the story, what happens? The pillar of cloud moves behind them. It leads them to this place, to the mouth of freedom, where they have a choice to make. Do I go back to what is comfortable? Do I go back to what... Moses, why would you bring us out here to die? We had food, we had protection, we had all of these things, and we could have just served Egypt there. Do I go back to that, or do I step out into faith and trust? God leads them to the mouth of freedom, but he will not make the decision for them. And I would submit to you tonight that God will lead you to places where he, is, where he longs to give you new birth and new life and new faith and new passion and new creativity and new adventure. He leads us to those places, but he will not. And he does not force us. And he puts the ball in your court and he puts the ball in my court. And he says, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I'm about. New life, new birth, freedom from, from the narrow places where God cannot be worshipped. And he says, step out in faith. I, I'm thinking that we've, we're probably sitting here tonight at all kinds of different mouths of freedom. And the question is whether we can imagine a new tomorrow. People that study poverty and, and uh, addiction and places where uh, they would say that the, the biggest tragedy is not the poverty and the lack of food or the lack of jobs or, or the addictions and the drugs and all that kind of stuff. They would say actually that the biggest tra- tragedy is a lack of imagination. Because oftentimes in that position, people cannot imagine a tomorrow that's different than today. And so as we sit here tonight, at whatever mouth of freedom God has brought you to, can you imagine a tomorrow that's different than today? Because the God of the Bible is a God who says that tomorrow doesn't have to be the same as today. You don't have to be caught in the same addictions, in the same relationships, in the same endless jobs, in the same things that suck your passions. And I'm calling you into new life and new birth and new freedom. Can you imagine what that would look like? This is the God of the Bible. This is the God who is calling each of us. So I'm going to ask Ben if he would come, and uh, he's going to sing a song you have probably heard. Uh, It was written by John Lennon, and it's called Imagine. And as we think about tonight, and whatever it is, wherever you are in the story, remember we started there and asked you to ask the question, where am I in this story? As Ben sings this song, I want you to just uh, maybe listen to the words, uh, meditate, because the kingdom of God and the church that God has called to be a part of this kingdom is about the ability to imagine and dream and have a vision for what could be in the future. That's the first description of the church in Acts, dreamers and visionaries. And so can you imagine a tomorrow that's different than today, one that has forgiveness and grace and mercy and new beginnings? and new life as a part of it.
And is God calling you into that? So let's uh, think about that, and Ben will pray for us.